you with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. One of our family traditions, probably like many of yours, is to watch uh, Christmas movies this time of year, even though we know it's Advent. So we're, uh, we watch Christmas movies. One of our favorite, uh, our family's favorite Christmas movies is Christmas Vacation. And uh, we know that it's a little bit irreverent, and we know that it's not everyone's favorite, but it's our favorite. Uh, Amy and I can practically recite it. Uh, we quote it all year long. Are you serious, Clark? All the time. And when the, when the attic ladder hits Clark in the face or when the granddad screams, squirrel, like we just howl with laughter every year. And I don't uh, mean to, I mean, well, there's, there's lots of ridiculous things in this movie, and I don't mean to make it sound more serious than it is. But the main plot line of the movie, if there is one, uh, is that Clark is waiting on the solution to a problem. Now, his problem is that he needs the money from his Christmas bonus to cover a check that he wrote. But the bonus hasn't showed up yet. And he's anxious, and he's worried, and he knows how he wants it to turn out, but he doesn't know how it is going to turn out. And again, not to make it more serious than it is, because it is a ridiculous movie. But that is an experience, his experience is an experience to which we can all relate. And we are waiting on the resolution to a problem and we're worried about it and we're anxious about it and we can't quit thinking about it and we know how we want it to turn out but we don't know how it is going to turn out. And maybe, like in the movie, it has to do for us with a major expense or maybe it has to do with a diagnosis or maybe it has to do with a relationship or your job, like maybe you applied for a new job and you're you're waiting on their decision, or maybe your company is being sold and you don't know if you will have a, new, uh, have a job. We always talk about Advent, the season of Advent, we always talk about it as a season of waiting. And when we're talking about twinkly lights and presents and sweet baby Jesus, then that's fine. And there's really something romantic, uh, really, about waiting. But when we're talking about life's big problems... Waiting stinks. Waiting stinks. I remember when Amy was pregnant with one of our kids, the ultrasound tech couldn't get a good image. And they said, well, you're going to have to go to the 3D imaging place because the fact that we can't get this particular image means that there could be a major birth defect. And your appointment for the 3D image is in two weeks. And it turned out fine. And, you know, it would have been fine either way. We would have adjusted. But those two weeks of waiting were terrible. Just filled with anxiety, filled with worry, readjusting our expectations. And that was only two weeks. Some of you know waiting for years. When it comes to life's big problems, waiting stinks. In our reading from Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah is speaking to a people who are waiting and 
at least it stinks for them, for any of them who have been paying attention, listening to Isaiah. Now, a lot of them have not been listening to Isaiah, and that's part of the problem. It is ignorant bliss for those who have kept their ears shut. But it stinks for those who have been paying attention. And it stinks for Isaiah, who has the, has the burden of being the one sharing the message and has a very clear picture of what is coming. Massive military forces from Babylon and Assyria in the north are coming to Israel as instruments of God's judgment. Because the people haven't listened to the prophets. Their religious, their religious practices are many. I mean, they are, they, they are doing the, making the sacrifices, coming to synagogue, but their religious practices are hollow, completely hollow. They're, they're not having an impact on their hearts. Their treatment of the poor uh, and the marginalized is atrocious. Their economic practices are unfair and out of whack. They are compromised morally, sexually, fiscally, spiritually. And God has been sending his word through the prophets, but the people are not listening. Now, the religiosity is fine, but it is not changing their hearts. And so God is going to take some drastic measures to get their attention. If you can imagine a slow-moving train that is packed with passengers inching ever closer to a washed out bridge and you knew there was just nothing you could do to stop it you couldn't get in touch with the conductor it was just moving and you couldn't fix it you've got an idea of how isaiah felt right that's that's all chapter 34 right and several other chapters in isaiah's uh, work judgment is coming and it's going to be a train wreck when we get to our passage, when we get to Isaiah 35, we get this beautiful glimpse of the end of the story. We get a promise on the other side of death. We get resolution. Even though the problem still has to work itself out, we get a hopeful glimpse beyond the stormy horizon. The one thing to know about this passage is that it is poetry. And that's a little hard to discern or pick out when, when it's written in paragraph form like it is in our bulletin, which is fine. That's the way we always do it. Uh, but, but if you pull it up on your phone or you go home and look at it in your Bible or the Bible in your pew rack, you're going to see it set off in poetic verse, which is always a good indication that the language is not to be taken literally. It is poetic imagery. It's more like metaphor. And, and so you're going to understand, like, if you have experienced a long period of difficulty, a period without relief, a period without resolution, if you have lived in dread of what is to come, or, you know, it's Advent, if you just cannot take Mariah Carey one more time, then perhaps you understand why Isaiah uses this image of a desert, Right? It's dry, it's burning, hot, weary, it's just barren land. There's no life there. Right? It's 
parched. You cannot quench your thirst. There's no way. Isaiah, of course, so you understand the image. Isaiah is speaking into this this state of their soul. He's using, of course, an image from their countryside. They would have known exactly what a desert was like, but he's using it to describe their souls. The desert. It's um, there. It's he's speaking actually also into the future. This this uh, wrenching season of exile that is coming, and it's going to be a hard season. It's spiritually dry. In some ways, lifeless season. And yet, it will be a season designed by God to turn their hearts back to God. God is willing for us to go through some hardship, some pain, if it gets us back to Him. And so, I want you to notice that they're not removed from the desert. There's no talk of escape. There's no move to a new climate. It is the desert itself that begins to bloom in Isaiah's imagery. The very place that was dry and barren is the place that bursts into life. The crocus, which is sort of like if a tulip and an iris had a baby, the crocus blossoms. This awesome, beautiful flower, springs of water pop up everywhere and streams begin to flow through the desert. There's life where there was no life, which is weird when you're talking about a desert. But it's pretty great when you're talking about our God who shepherds our souls. And he will not abandon you through the difficult season. If he allows you to go through a season like that, or for reasons known only to him, he orchestrates a season like that, it's It may feel terrible, but it will be temporary. So then Isaiah brings the imagery of renewal a little closer to home. It's still metaphor, but he talks about weak hands being strengthened and feeble knees being made firm. We'd like for that to be literal, I know, some some of us. And the infirm being healed, but notice what happens. Right in the middle of all the water flowing and the knees strengthening and the flowers blooming. And this is how they, they wrote. Because we write, in our time, we write like, like thing, 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 climax. And that's how it is. But they had put the climax to make it really important. They put all the things around it. And right in the middle of their writing, they put the most important things. Just right in the middle. It's, in fact, it's the very, uh, the thing that happens is the thing that makes all the other stuff Happen. It's all the blooming and the streaming and the leaping and singing for joy happens because God shows up in the desert. God shows up in the desert. Isaiah says, here is your God. He will come with a vengeance. But it's not a vengeance against you. It's a vengeance against everything that's been keeping you from him. It's a vengeance for you. He will come and save you. He will come and save you. Now, for Isaiah, he's telling his people that a hard time is coming, but don't lose hope because God's going to eventually fix it. He will come and save you. And, you know, that's hopeful, especially if you know that your hard season's coming. It's good to know that, that it'll come to an end. And it happened, right? God did rescue his people from exile. But for you and me, 
living, when we live on this side of Jesus, on this side of the cross, this passage is fulfilled a, a little differently on a couple of levels. Uh, the first and the most important level is that our greatest exile is the separation that we naturally have from God because of our sin. Because of the irresistible impulse that we have to serve ourselves and not him. Of the impulse we have to put our own needs and wants above the needs of others. And for our sin, he already has come and saved us. We don't have to wait on this. He's already come. It says he will come. That's the Christmas story. right? That is the incarnation of God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It says he will save us. That's Good Friday and Easter death and resurrection. So that's the first level. We don't have to wait. Our faith is in the fact that he has already come and he has saved us. And yet, right, we have been reconciled with God. But there are, as you know, I'm sure, uh, um, uh, seasons in our life where it feels like God is so far. Just so far away and in those seasons we're waiting and waiting stinks because the marriage is just not getting any better or the treatments are just wiping you out or the, the job is sucking your soul or you feel like you're failing as a parent or whatever it is in our lives but where the solution has escaped us Isaiah declares Isaiah declares that the story is not over if God is the one who's writing it. The story is never over if God is the one who's writing it. I mean, we can look at the life of Jesus and see that we may not know why God allows suffering in our life, but it can't be because he doesn't love us. We may not know why he allows suffering in our lives, but it can't be because he doesn't love us. I want to say really clearly about this. These seasons in our life, in our lives as Christians, are not God's judgment. They are not God's retribution or response of his as punishment for things that we've done wrong. We can, sometimes our minds go there, but I say confidently that those things are not judgment because all of the judgment of God the Father has been poured out on God the Son on the cross. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Of course, that doesn't mean we won't have hard seasons. Of course, it doesn't mean God won't use those things to turn us back to him. But it is not judgment. It may be to turn our hearts back to God. It may be to help us know God more intimately. It may be to help prepare us for something else down the road. But it is not judgment. And it is not because he has forgotten us. He will and save us he has in his first coming he is in the by the presence of the holy spirit he will come again these are the promises of advent now here is maybe the most hopeful thing to me anyway about the whole passage the thing that i'm really the most excited about pointing out again isaiah is speaking poetically but he says towards the end of the passage there's going to be a highway there and it's headed to zion there's a highway there, and it's headed to Zion. And if Zion is poetically representing heaven, which I believe it is, then, 
this is the very road to salvation. And he says there will be a highway there in the desert, where the desert was, in the very place of waiting, in the very area of your life where you felt spiritually dry and lifeless, helpless, where you needed God to act, that season becomes the road to your salvation. That hardship, that difficult relationship, that anxious uncertainty, that place where you're begging for resolution is the place where God opens us up and readies us for himself. That's where we can see and experience and know God as merciful Savior. So I don't know if you're in one of those seasons now, if you have been or you will be, waiting on the resolution to a seemingly unfixable uh, problem. But hear this. Waiting stinks, but the story is never over if God's the one writing it. So may our deserts give us the eyes to see God's gracious providence working in our lives. And may we all be prepared now to receive God's only answer to our greatest exile, his son, Jesus Christ.